0: Radio Mano Papa Chango. What's up, everybody? I'm back from Los Angeles. I'm a little late getting this podcast out. I apologize for that. Um, But I just got back from Los Angeles last night. I was down there, uh, sort of, you know, many birds with one stone visit. I uh, was hanging out with my parents and my sister and her husband, of course. And uh, it was my aunt's birthday, which was always nice. She's one of my favorite people in the world, my Topanga aunt. And um, I was also visiting people, uh, doing interviews, media stuff. I did a podcast with Duncan Trussell, which is already out. I mean, it was amazing. I hadn't even, I left his place, I was on my way to have dinner with friends. I left his place at about 6 and about 6.20, I saw he tweeted that the podcast was up. (laughs) (laughs) what the fuck that was fast but hey haste makes waste because the first version that he tweeted or that he uploaded he had inadvertently left out a big chunk of the conversation so if you're one of the people who downloaded that first um file like in the first few hours uh you might want to re-download and you'll get a much longer one if you enjoyed that conversation duncan and i have a lot of fun together because you know uh i love the guy he's a wonderful guy super smart funny as you know if you've ever listened to him if you know who i'm talking about duncan trussell family hour if you don't google that shit um but we don't see eye to eye on everything we don't agree on everything which actually makes for more interesting conversations because we do have some fundamental disagreements uh, as to what's happening in the world and where we're headed Um, but we come at those disagreements with uh, a lot of love and mutual respect so i really enjoy our conversations another highlight of the visit was uh, having uh, lunch with neil strauss and his wife and meeting his Their son, uh, beautiful little baby, and um, hanging out with him. Neil and I have become good friends, uh, sort of. Some might find that to be counterintuitive. I didn't expect, uh, knowing what little I knew about him, that we would get along. But uh, we do. He's, He's a very cool, interesting guy. I recorded a podcast with him a few months ago. Uh, in my previous visit, on my previous visit, um, and we were sort of cruising around Malibu where he lives in a golf cart, and uh, I had my portable recorder with me, and he was, Neil's a very um, thoughtful and, uh, (laughs) what's the word, careful. Uh, He likes to look uh, before he leaps, He's careful with his public image and all that, so he wasn't sure he really wanted to do a podcast because he was sort of waiting for his new book to come out and get the timing right. And but I guess I convinced him, you know, to at least let me record stuff. So we're cruising around in his golf cart, and I've got my little portable recorder. Um, and then we went to a cafe, and so it's sort of like uh, you know out in the field and but then after listening to it neil's not sure he really wants me to to use it because the sound quality's not great there's wind noises and you know background noise and all that and he thought it would be sort of irritating for people to listen to i tried to convince him that you know that that reflects on me not on him right i mean uh people listening to this podcast might say oh what the fuck chris you know why are you doing that to my ears but they're not going to blame neil for that um, so I think we we agreed that uh, I'll use it as bonus material for the people who uh, support the podcast through Fund What You Love. So I'll put that together pretty soon, and I'll uh, send a link to the Fund What You Love folks. But Neil doesn't really want it to be part of the regular rigmarole here at Tangentially Speaking. Uh, today's episode is with Mark Manson, who is uh, an author, a blogger, uh, entrepreneur, very interesting guy. He's lived around the world. He's described his experiences and and, uh, different cultures and being an outsider, being a traveler. uh, And he's basically set up a business um, just being a really smart, interesting guy and being able to communicate uh, beautifully. He's a really good writer. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that about every writer I have on this podcast. Um, But I've read some of Mark's essays, obviously, well before I knew who he was. Somebody just sent me a link and um, his writing is not only really good and um, his interests align a lot with things I'm interested in and experiences that I've had. Um, But he writes really well in the way that I like to write, you know, so it's so it touches very close to home It's not like reading, you know, I might read Shakespeare or something and say, yeah, obviously he's a great writer But, you know, that's very alien to my own voice or the voices in my head Um, But Mark's writing uh, aligns very closely with the voices in my head. So um, Yeah, it's it's I have a lot of uh, respect for what he does like every visit i I have to l a it's it's like the opposite of a bell curve. It's an upside down bell curve. There's a lot of really high quality experience and a lot of really low quality experience and not much in the middle. Uh, that's my experience of Los Angeles. It's like you know I go from brunch with uh, Neil Strauss to uh, recording a podcast with uh, Dr. Susan Block about bonobos and and uh, sexuality and all that stuff. But in between those two very interesting experiences with very interesting people uh, was about two and a half hours of sitting in traffic. That's LA. Fuck that place. Drives me crazy because... You know, there's so many interesting people there, and, and I've been very lucky since Sex of Dawn came out. I've, I've made contacts with all these fascinating people. But, you know, if I were to go from Neil's place to Duncan's place to, um, you know, to like Joe Rogan's studio or something, that would probably be seven to eight hours of driving. <laughs> Literally, seven to eight hours sitting in fucking traffic. So that's why I don't live in L.A., You know, I would be doing the shrimp parade a lot. Uh, I know people would love that. I'd love that. Uh, You know, I'd be on TV a lot. I'd be on radio. I'd be a much bigger media presence and sell more books and have a bigger podcast audience and have a lot of very interesting podcast guests because there's so many interesting people in L.A. But I just don't want to live in L.A., you know, it's It's a deal with the devil living down there, and it's a deal I'm not willing to make. Another highlight of my visit was hanging out with my buddy McKee. Uh, Probably, I don't know if I should, I don't want to use his last name. That's probably enough right there, but uh, he's an inspirational guy. He's a wonderful cat, and I know he listens to this podcast, so I'm not going to say much more. I don't want to embarrass him, but love you, buddy. It's cool to know you're out there listening to this. McKee's had some pretty serious medical issues in the last year and uh, without going into detail or invading his privacy uh, I don't think I know anyone who is as successful as main, at maintaining perspective on life as he is while going through some pretty heavy shit um, it's uh, it's It's admirable and fascinating to see someone going through really serious challenges um, and maintaining control over perspective, which, you know, when you really get down to it, is the only thing we can control. It's the only thing. You can't control the shit that happens to you in life. You can't control the car that swerves into your lane of traffic. You can't control the tumor that grows in your fucking liver. You can't control... The trajectory of your civilization, you know, that's my particular bug up my ass these days. You can't control any of that stuff. The only thing you can control is how you let it affect you or don't let it affect you. How the perspective from which you view these things. And, you know, when you're viewing things from a perspective of intelligence and wisdom and authenticity often the thing you're viewing can can pull you away from that perspective right especially when it involves suffering and particularly your own suffering it's so easy to slip even if you know even if you've studied you know you've done the work you've done the self-exploration you've you've pursued and cultivated the authenticity that that allows you to to see clearly what is going on and how little it really matters right you know yeah but if you've got the toothache if it's your tooth that hurts it's so easy to descend from that perspective into the whining sniveling self-pitying pathetic little being that we all carry around inside us and uh it's difficult to, to remember all these things you've learned and to hold them in your heart and to, and to fortify yourself with this knowledge when the shit really starts hitting the fan. Um, so yeah, it's an honor to know somebody who, who actually pulls that off. Um, I don't know to what extent I'm able to pull it off uh, or will be able to pull it off the the shit hasn't hit the fan in any real serious sense in my life as yet uh so those tests are still ahead of me, and because of that it's a great thing to to have a friend who who you can sort of watch go through some of that stuff and uh it's it it gives you hope that you'll be up for it you know when your particular fan gets hit with your particular shit. I often think how funny age is in that sense. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but, you know, age, we talk about age with years. I'm 53, but I've got friends who are in their 20s who have kids or whose parents have died or who have dealt with, uh, you know, cancer diagnosis in themselves or in their husband or wife or and those things to me are, all of those things are in many ways a more accurate indicator or gauge of, of age than the number of years you've been on the planet. You know, like when your parents die, your life's different. You're, you're next. There's no one, there's no buffer between you and mortality. There's no one who you know 100% will do absolutely anything to save your ass. You're on your own. And that's a perspective on life that you can't get no matter how old you are uh, until that event happens in your life. So it's, it's a funny thing. I've got friends who are a lot younger than me uh, in terms of years, But when I'm with them, I can't help feeling younger than them because they're dealing with stuff I've I've never dealt with. I don't don't have kids, you know, Um, you know, big mortgages and responsibilities and all that kind of stuff that that's all foreign to me. You know, some of it's in my future and some of it is just never going to happen. Anyway, I don't want to go on too too long with this because I'm already late getting it posted and uh, Mark and I had a great conversation so I don't want to pull your attention away from that anymore. Thank you, as always, to Basin and Range for the opening music, basinandrangeband.com. You can hear more of their stuff there. Carcy Blanton for the closing song smoke alarm which she recorded on a beautiful day in new orleans with her windows open and the birds chirping just for us and uh what else thanks to all of you for your support through fund what you love uh very cool to see people still you know signing up for that and dropping a couple bucks in the bucket every month that's very helpful and appreciated and to those of you who go through the Amazon link at chrisryanphd.com, uh, appreciate that. And uh, that stuff adds up. It's really nice. And I know it's a hassle. You have to, because you can't just do it once. And every time you go to Amazon, it, it rings it up. You have to, every time you have to go f- to Chris Ryan PhD, click on that thing, then go into Amazon. Everything you buy in that session, in that, you know, from that uh, checkout sequence will go. You don't need to do it for every item. Um, but you do have to do it for every visit to Amazon. So I appreciate those of you who go to the trouble to do that. Uh, it's, uh, it's really cool. And, uh, in some ways, just the fact that you remember and that, and that you're willing to put in a few extra seconds to, you know, go through the site, um, that means as much as the money. I really, it's, uh, it's really cool to have this kind of relationship. In fact, that's something Duncan and I talked about in, uh, in his podcast, that you'll find it, Duncan Trussell, Family Hour. Um, we talked about this relationship uh, that we have with our audience. One of uh, uh, Alex in Vancouver wrote to me about that and sort of you know spurred that conversation. How we've got this very uh, this unprecedented relationship. Like I have this an unprecedented relationship with you because. You know, it's not unprecedented for one person to have an audience of thousands or whatever. That happens all the time in many different media and all different forms. Um, But it's unprecedented in the sense that, uh, you know, a podcaster, Duncan, me, Joe, whatever, we're ourselves. We're not, this isn't an act. This isn't a a role or, you know, a, a... Uh, this isn't something that we're pretending to uh, a character that we're presenting to you this is just us right just talking whatever certainly for me because i'm not a media i'm not an actor i'm not a comedian you know maybe with comics there's more of an awareness of your act as opposed to yourself but for me there really isn't and um so it's it's a strange thing when i meet people as I often do, sometimes people come through Portland and, you know, if I have time, I'm in town, whatever, we'll have a beer or a drink or something. And, you know, they often say like, wow, it's so weird to hear your voice uh, coming from you coming from a person as opposed to my computer or my iPhone or whatever. And um, yeah. And it's weird that there's this sort of one way intimacy, you know, like you actually do sort of know me it's weird. I I don't know you, most of you, but you do actually know me. So it's not like meeting an actor or a musician or something where it's like, okay, I've spent a lot of time listening to the Police, but I don't know Sting, right? I don't really know what's going on in his family or what he thinks about or, you know, the challenges he's facing when he's writing his songs or whatever. I guess the closest Uh, parallel to it is is writers because a lot of writers who are writing essays about you know or autobiographical stuff then you do really it's a very private kind of relationship that's one way but as far as uh the voice and the conversational thing i think this is pretty unprecedented historically and quite interesting and potentially transformative uh on a global political scale not just podcasts but the unfiltered the ability to have communication that's not filtered that I can say whatever I want, have whatever guest I want and it can get to you directly without any company in between deciding whether it's a good thing or not uh, from their perspective. And that's another reason that I really like this non-advertising approach, you know, because I feel like that's inviting an intermediary into our relationship here. So, I really appreciate those of you who uh, have contributed and are contributing to support the podcast, to keep it bullshit free and keep the, the flow of ideas uh, direct. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you next week. All right. Uh, this week's episode is with Mark Manson, who is not related to Charles Manson, as far as I know. Uh, I, i actually have a, a strange Charles Manson story we can talk about if you want. Um, are you related to Charles Manson?
1: Uh, I am not, but I, I often enjoy telling people that I am.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, Charles Manson didn't kill anyone. Why the fuck is he in prison?
1: <laughs> uh, there's a lot of propaganda around it. I don't know. It's this, uh. He kind of created a whole cultish mystique around himself. Which,
0: yeah, but uh, you shouldn't... You which know, is if,
1: even more fun than, than killing a bunch of people, I guess.
0: Well, that's the thing. And like, if if creating a cult uh, that includes people who kill people puts you in prison, then you know Jerry Falwell should have been in prison, right? I mean, there are so many fucking cult- Anyway, that...
1: You're, I, you're opening a big can of worms <laughs> <laughs> right
0: now. <laughs> that's what I do. I am a worm can opener. Uh, yeah, it's called tangentially speaking for a reason. I mean, I haven't even like, you know, introduced you properly and we're already off and running in a Anyway, Mark Manson, I you came to my attention I don't know what it was, a year ago or something. Somebody sent me an article or I saw a tweet of an article or something that you'd written about the power of not giving a fuck. And I read that article and I had This dual reaction that we sometimes have when we come across someone's work where it was like, God damn it, this is really well written and and thought out and and fuck, this is an article that I was planning to write. This is I've been thinking about this for years. And, you know, my little my claim to fame is uh that i started talking about how my bucket list had turned into a fuckit list as i got older and i i realized that you know all these things that i thought i wanted to do like bungee jumping or whatever you know now i realized were distractions from the real list of of worthwhile activities and now you know that those things were on my fuckit list anyway so you you wrote this article that was so well done man and then i went and read some of your other stuff and um you know, fuck yes or no, which encapsulates beautifully my own philosophy toward relationships. If she's not into it, just let it go. Don't waste your fucking energy. 10 things Americans don't know about America. Fantastic. So, anyway, I don't mean to co opt your creativity or to, you know, ride your coattails or anything, but so much of. Your trajectory through life and the way you're thinking about it is deeply, deeply familiar to me. So, it's both uh, a privilege and an irritant to know you.
1: <laughs> well, I'm ha- <laughs> I'm happy to irritate you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. No, you're you're a really good writer, man. You're have you always like as a student were you were people telling you you should be a writer?
1: No, you know the the ironic thing is. Uh, I I was kind of I was told that I was a bad writer. I made bad grades uh in writing class and it wasn't because I couldn't well I mean now I can look back and, and see that it wasn't because I couldn't write. It was it was because I I always deviated from the assignment. I would kind of go off in my la la land and mm. start writing about all sorts of crazy stuff and the teachers didn't like that so they gave me bad grades. But i so I grew up thinking I was a bad writer or not or thinking that i I didn't have much of a knack for it, and it wasn't actually until I was in my twenties um, and kind of obsessively posting on forums uh that people started telling me like, "My God, dude, you should start a site, you should write a book um, you know so that's kind of where it all came from
0: well, that's great i I sometimes I think I've told this story um when I was a kid my father was a writer and um and I did the same thing you did I would you know go off on tangents but I guess I was fortunate in the sense that I had several teachers throughout school who who said wow you're a you're good at that you know like fine ignore the assignment do whatever you want and so they they cultivated that and I guess my dad cultivated that a lot but I remember my dad saying to me you should always try to write as if you're hanging out, having a conversation with your close friends. Yeah. Keep it. So that voice and you do this, your voice is very casual and playful and um, you're not afraid to, to, you know, throw jokes in there and take chances. And just half an hour ago while I was, uh, I was looking around at some of your stuff uh, in preparation to talk with you. And I read your, your piece on India and man, that, that was so beautiful. And so it captures so well, the frustration of being in India that first time and just being overwhelmed by the poverty and the misery and the people trying to get your attention. But then you included those beautiful moments where someone's just completely needlessly honest and vulnerable and open with you. And it it was really nice. Um, Anyway, I, I just really want to compliment you on that. And that's not something I do often, you know, but uh, it's it's a pleasure to read your stuff. So what did you study in college?
1: Uh, I studied international relations.
0: So uh, did you know, were you planning to hit the road?
1: Um, I kind of, it was a dream. It was kind of a, you know, a twinkle in the eye, so to speak. But uh, no, I had no clue. I mean i thought i i actually when I was in school I thought I was gonna go into finance and then uh I got out of school and I got into finance and within about two weeks I wanted to quit um I hated it so um actually the the trigger for me in my my worldwide vagabonding um was uh was the Tim Ferris book um I read that and you know I had always dreamed about kind of bouncing around the planet for a while doing this and that um but it it never seemed realistic to me or um you know i figured at best i would kind of end up in some corporate job and i would talk my boss into giving me six months off when i was 35 or something um but when i read that book i was like holy shit uh okay this is this is how you do it and quit my job a few months later and um started getting to work on it
0: and when was that
1: this was early 2008
0: early 2008 okay right and how old are you if i can ask
1: i'm 31 31
0: all right so So
1: i was 24 when i when i did that um i've literally like had a day job for like two months in my life (laughs)
0: yeah nicely done well you know i think we're we're on similar paths i haven't had a job since the 90s um you know i'm quite a bit old i'm 53 so i'm you know a generation older than you but um similar stuff i got out of college went to alaska worked on fishing boats and canneries and did shit like that and then stumbled into a job in Midtown Manhattan for a couple of years, which was bizarre. Uh, <laughs> you know, and but I, I never had any interest in finance or anything like that. But my first serious job was managing commercial real estate in Midtown Manhattan. So, you know, it was that was like stepping in onto another planet for a while. But then I left there after a couple of years and went straight to India and had the sorts of experiences that you described in that piece, just being... Yeah you know like dealing with and i was just interestingly i was uh, writing about this yesterday in the manuscript i'm working on now i was writing about that time in india because i was trying to i'm 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 trying to talk about um how wealth i i think we we look at the world today and especially with the 1% framing of things you know it's the 1% against the rest of us and but what i've noticed in my life is that the 1% are uh as fucked as the rest of us in a lot of ways and i don't think people incorporate that into their thinking enough so i was writing about india as as a way as the place where i first recognized that i was unimaginably wealthy yeah you know and you talk about that in your piece where you're thinking stop at an atm and start handing out money or when you give the the plate of curry to the the people sitting in front of the restaurant and you know it's it's a nothing it, it makes no impact and and that's what wealth does wealth puts us in this position where we're forced to recognize that we even if you could theoretically you could affect a lot of change but practically you can't right and so you create this scar tissue to make life manageable to create to be able to step over the bodies yeah yeah, it's it's bizarre.
1: It's um, I saw an article, I don't remember where, um, and it it was I think it was kind of one of these annoying listicle things, but, um, you know, it's like every once in a while a sentence will pop out and actually be kind of profound. Um, and I remember seeing in one of those articles, it said something like, uh, money, money isn't just time; money is also responsibility. So like, um, when when you be, start to become wealthy or you accumulate more wealth, um, that wealth gives you more influence and more opportunities, um, and that influence and opportunity also brings its own responsibilities. And there's a, there's a certain weight to those responsibilities. Uh, and it's funny. I, I I come from a pretty a pretty wealthy family. My father's a business owner and he's very successful. And um, you know. I've I've been able I've been fortunate in that I've been able to have a lot of very frank conversations with him um about this type of stuff, you know, since I've started my own business. And it's funny, like he told me he said it, it's so weird. He said one of the one of the things I like I dislike the most about being wealthy and successful is it feels like you're not allowed to talk about your problems. Um <laughs> yeah. because your problems are so much better than other people's problems, but like there's still problems and they still keep you up at night and they still bother you and they still stress you out. Um, But you can't really like go to your friends and be like, you know, Hey, my stockbroker just ripped me off for 5%, you know, or whatever. Like they'll just look at you and say, yeah, fuck off. (laughs) Like you you have a stockbroker. Yeah. So it, it puts you in this really weird position like, I I uh, I joke around in one of my articles, you know, about the, that that old Biggie song, "More Money, More Problems." Right. But it, like, it puts you in a weird position where, um, yeah, you prefer it over other things, but that doesn't necessarily mean it like it's better than everything else, you know.
0: Well, on that very point, your father made I quote um, Jim Carrey, the comedian, uh, and he says that 's the trouble about that 's the trouble with being me at this point. Nobody gives a damn what my problem is. I could literally have a tumor on the side of my head, and people would be like yeah big deal i 'd eat a tumor for the kind of money you 're pulling down
1: <laughs> right <exactly.
0: laughs> it 's like yeah it 's isolating uh, yeah you know you, you, and that 's the and that 's what i 'm getting at in this this art or this uh, book i 'm writing that it, it turns out that when there is um vast inequality of wealth however whatever we consider wealth to be um everybody suffers mm-hmm. right the the people at the top, the people at the bottom, and when you pull when you start to eliminate that discrepancy in wealth, you have community, and the problem is when you have the the discrepancies you lose community. And the people on the bottom still have community, but the people on the top are more and more isolated. It's hard to talk about this stuff without resorting to cliches, though. You know, the whole, it's lonely at the top kind of bullshit. But um, anyway, so you, is your father, how's he feel about the path that you're on?
1: Um, He was a little bit skeptical at first. Um, I think that had more to do with the line of work I was going into, so I was going into uh, basically marketing dating advice online, um, and he and and I was kind of involved in some other stuff like different, you know, promoting affiliate offers and, you know, I was I was young and I I, I was kind of clueless and I think that made him uncomfortable and a little bit worried, um, you know. But it was once I finally once things kind of started to coalesce. After a few years into a pretty like sustainable business that made money, and it was clear that the blogging thing was going to work, and and the writing thing was working, um, he started to feel pretty good and, and pretty proud. And now, and now actually, it's it's funny. He's like, he gets very excited when he talks to me sometimes because, like, nobody else in the family is. A business owner or an entrepreneur and so like sometimes he and i will talk about stuff and he's like man like nobody else gets that (laughs) no nobody else in the family understands so it's cool
0: that's that's good is your are you is your mom in the picture
1: so my parents are divorced Uh uh and my mom is like has been unconditionally supportive from day one um i don't think she really uh was kind of as involved or familiar with like the ins and outs of my business, but you know, she's a mom and so she just automatically assumes that anything I'm going to do is like the best thing anybody's ever done. (laughs) Yeah. uh, She's been great. (laughs) Yeah.
0: People ask me what my mom thinks about sex at dawn, this book we wrote and, and it's the same thing. It's like, she loves it. But I also think that if I had written a book on how to, you know, dispose of bodies without getting caught she'd be <laughs> proud you know my son wrote a book yeah exactly. has your mom read your book
1: uh she has she has
0: um, by, by the way the book we're talking about is called models attract women through honesty yeah. yeah so it's an interesting book for a mom to read i'd imagine
1: uh yeah she actually told me apparently i i don't remember which part but i mentioned her at one part in the book and she said it totally freaked her out um, <laughs> Because, you know, our our dating, like a lot of what happens in our dating lives, we're, we're playing out yeah. some of the relationships of we had with our parents growing up or what we saw between our parents growing up. Um, and so I talk about my parents a little bit in, in my book. Um, and she said that it, it kind of freaked her out, creeped her out. But, <laughs> you know, I, that's yeah.
0: totally understandable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a funny thing when you're, as a writer, it, it's... Uh you know you often come up against this question of what do i own and you know because it is my life you know and so i'm writing about my life i'm writing about my experiences but so many of those experiences involve other people who you care about yeah and you don't want to be invasive or exploitative but by the same token it is your life so yeah yeah it's
1: it's it's a funny line. I mean, I've I've had a couple awkward conversations over the years, and I'd I'd actually like to hear your what your kind of conclusion on this is. Um, I've had a couple awkward conversations over the year where, like, I would mention, say, an anecdote about somebody I know or something that happened with somebody I know, uh, you know, in an article or in a book, um, but I would keep them anonymous. I would just say, like, you know. I once had a friend and blah, blah, blah happened. And there's no way to know exactly who that person is. Um, But the person that it is, you know, would kind of email me and be like, hey, that feels really weird. Um, You know, and on the one hand, it's like sometimes I, I, you know, do I ask for permission? But it's like, well, I'm not giving away their identity. And this is also an experience we shared together. And it's also how this experience affected me. So it's like, should I have to ask permission? To write about all my own experiences that involve other people, um, so I, I, yeah, I haven't totally found a like a comfortable way of dealing with that. Uh, I don't know. Have you?
0: No, I, I. I guess I'm probably in the same place you are. I feel like if there's really no way for anyone except the person in question to know, then you don't owe them anything. Yeah, you know, that's that, how I. Feel. Um. Yeah, I mean, for example, I opened Sex at Dawn with a, a little story about when I was in Malaysia with a girlfriend and a monkey attacked us, and you know this whole thing I, I like turned into a monkey and attacked the monkey, and it it got weird, and I uh, in the in the first draft I had changed her identity to Casilda because I thought you know. It's easier, and Casilda's my wife, and we've traveled all over. So it's like, well, whatever, just stick Casilda in, and you know, change the identity of the person in question. And um, and then Casilda read that, and she said, "Well, that's not, that's well, a, it's not true, and b, like, well, you experienced this with her, right? Why not? Yeah. You know. And so I wrote, I wrote to this ex of mine and asked her if it was cool, and she said, "Oh, of course it's cool, no problem." And so, and you know, we have a good relationship. So then, like, years later, three, four years later, she told me, this ex of mine, that she was taking um philosophy class in night school in Albuquerque, I think. And w- the first reading assignment was uh, that uh, preface of Sex at Dawn. And so she goes in after reading it, and the professor is like, well, what did you think of this? and And she said that woman was me that was me who got attacked by the monkey so i guess there's some value in in you know sticking to the truth in that case but yeah it's i mean it's tough i run into some things um where i've been involved in situations that were illegal and mm-hmm. that's where i really get nervous about it yeah you know cuz You know, whatever, if like there's a question of someone who evaded lots of tax and I'm talking about that a little too loosely. And, you know, that could end up being a major issue for someone. So I'm more concerned with that than, you know, someone feeling uncomfortable. But yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, there are things, there are stories that I'm sort of uh, I'm not going to tell publicly as long as my parents are alive. (laughs) <laughs> Which is a bummer because my parents are only about 20 years older than me. So, you know, those stories might never get told.
1: It'll be a while. <laughs> <laughs> or
0: I might die first, you know. who knows? But yeah, yeah. Because I don't know. Some of the... It's a weird thing. We're talking about your mother reading your book. Like, my mother, I think, reads and listens to everything she can find by me. I don't think she knows about the podcast or doesn't know how to, like, download podcasts yet. So... Maybe we're in, you know, we're in safe ground here. But, um, but and and she just does that out of love, like you were saying, it's unconditional love. But um, but it is, and it's a weird thing to say at fifty three years old. But I, there are some things I don't want her to hear me say, you know.
2: Yeah.
0: So I don't know. I, I've told some stories on Rogan's podcast that, uh, because I know she doesn't listen to Joe Rogan. If my right. mom is Part- ever. Li- <laughs> If my mom's listening to Joe Rogan's podcast, you know, the fuck, the, the, I'm not even trying anymore. <laughs> anyway, so uh, uh, getting back to, like, I, I just want to get a sense of of your your trajectory here. So you went to, where are you from? Are you Southern California or where are you?
1: I'm originally from Austin, Texas.
0: Austin, Texas. Ah, okay. Uh, do you know um, Tucker Max?
1: Uh, I do not, I've I've met him briefly once, but I, I don't know him.
0: Because, you know, he's involved in this thing now, uh, very similar to your book and your approach to sort of like a dating guide without the bullshit kind of yeah, approach. Yeah,
1: he, he started a podcast, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's a podcast and, and a book uh, that I think is either out or about to come out. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I think he's writing it. With David Buss?
0: No, with uh, Jeffrey Miller. Oh, okay. Yeah, similar, you know, uh, evolutionary psychologist. So, um,
1: similar kind of stance on things?
0: Yeah, yeah, a little less, uh, what, I don't know, uh, dogmatic, I would say, than David yeah. Buss. Um, okay. Yeah. Do you know David Buss?
1: Oh, yeah, I, I bet you're a huge fan.
0: uh well for people who don't know what we're talking about david buss is a a very prominent evolutionary psychologist who teaches in texas right he
1: he teaches at ut austin i i don't know him personally but like i know his work so
0: yeah so he's done a lot of he's sort of one of the 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 pillars of what we call (laughs) the standard narrative in sex at dawn which is the idea that women have evolved to trade fidelity for resources for men. And yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's
1: very, he's very big on the biological determinism. Men are like this, women are like this, right. and it's never going to change.
0: Right? right. He also yeah. read a very controversial book about, uh, what is it, jealousy, I think. Jealousy. Yeah. yeah, like jealousy is just part of the package. You're never going to get rid of that. And he, you know, was he involved in that rape book? There was. Uh, Which one's that? There was a book about, you know, making the same biological sorts of arguments that rape um, makes perfect sense from an evolutionary perspective. It's a reproductive.
1: Uh, uh, That was, I think that was Sperm Wars. I believe.
0: Well, there was Sperm Wars, is a different one, but the, uh, I think it was Thorn, Randy Thornhill. I don't know if David Buss was a co author or not um, of the rape book, but that got very, you know, that was very controversial. Obviously. But anyway, yeah, he's, he's one <laughs> of these people who makes this biological argument, you know, people evolve to be the way they are, and that's the way they are, and, you know, what are you going to yeah. do about it? Um, yeah, I, I had a strange encounter with him, actually. We were uh, at a conference in Mexico. Him and me and Helen Fisher and Robert Sapolsky and Richard Dawkins. It was an interesting crowd. And, um, yeah, I was sort of the odd man out there, you know, yeah. the sort of uh, the, the rebel or whatever, the renegade. But we ended up in the bar one night and got kind of sloshed and actually, I think, ended up in a friendly, agree-to-disagree kind of place. So... I was happy about that.
1: Yeah, and that, and that's all, I mean, at, that's kind of all that you you can do, you know, without diverting this too much into, like, academic territory, but um, I still feel like in this field, there's still so much that we don't understand, and like, it, it's people kind of just put their stake down and say, you know what, this evidence seems more likely to me, and other people say, this evidence seems more likely to me, and and you kind of you pick a side, um, you know. It's, it's yeah. still it's it's it, the field still feels so young, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that there's something um, about academia that creates rigidity in people's positions. Yeah, you know, because you're because of the the pressure to publish you're sort of forced to um, be certain before you are. Mm. And then once you've placed that stake, like that's your career. You know, you gotta, I, I was having an online debate with um, someone, I, I won't say who it was, but someone in that group. Um, and uh you you know i sort of backed this person into a corner where they had contradicted themselves and if the thing they'd said previously were true then you know this central position that they've been defending couldn't possibly be true and and it got to this you know sort of checkmate position and he said well no i shouldn't it was a woman she said to me my ideas are like my children i'll defend them to the death And I thought, ooh, okay, well that, you know, there you go, right? We're not talking about what's true or more likely to be true. We're talking about emotional connections to things, you know, and that's, yeah.
1: It it almost becomes kind of religious at some point. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. And
1: it's because and so much of this, this, this stuff on sexuality, I mean, so much of it really ties into people's, like, personal belief systems how they see relationships how they see the world how they see um you know just human nature in general and and you know so when you attack something that i suppose you know could be small like say you know jealousy is not biologically hardwired it's it's something that is either learned or it's a form of neuroticism or just it's faulty beliefs or whatever um it kind of, I guess it has a ripple effect in people's value systems. Um, Like it starts disrupting a lot of other things and and messing with their head.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right that it, it is religious in the sense that any uh, questioning of any element of it puts people on the defensive and they feel that their entire worldview is under some sort of attack. You know, it's so many people take Sex at Dawn to be a book advocating swinging or, you know, whatever, open relationships. And I have to constantly be reminding people in public presentations and things that, you know, there's zero dating advice in that book. You know, the only advice is don't lie to yourself or people you love. That's the only advice that we give. We're not you know there's no saying what's true for you and what isn't, and I think yeah. and the other thing that's that's sort of religious is there's this either or thinking you know like yeah. jealousy is either human nature and unavoidable or it's purely cultural and you know just a bunch of bullshit and the argument I'm always trying to make is that it's both,
1: yeah,
0: you know jealousy is a form of insecurity, insecurity is definitely an in innate uh, capacity and tendency, right? Any puppy gets freaked out if its mother's gone or if the food's taken away or whatever. I mean, it's just, that's there. Right. The fact that we apply those feelings to other people's sex lives is, you know, that's more of a cultural, you know, packaging of it. But
1: anyway. And I, and I, and I imagine, you know, there's some people that are kind of, for whatever reason, they're, they're, genetically more inclined to experience certain insecurities more than others you know just as we're all genetically inclined to prefer some experiences more than others um some people are going to be genetically inclined to experience certain insecurities more than others and, and that's fine um uh, so yeah I, I think i was actually gonna you mentioned helen fisher earlier and it's funny because i think she says a lot of similar things that you do um and maybe I'm wrong, but, like, I don't perceive controversy to follow her. <laughs> like, like, it's kind of followed you. Or not controversy, but, like, um, you know, there, there have been some, a lot, like, there have been a number of, you know, kind of blow-ups where people are like, Sexathon is wrong and this is why, and, you know, people going on these long rants. I never see that about Helen Fisher, but Helen Fisher's been coming out and saying the same stuff for like
0: ten years now, um, yeah. Well, why,
1: how, why do you think that is?
0: Well, she's she's very interesting because I think it's because she, um, sort of she doesn't take it all the way there. She's found a compromise position. So what she says is, humans are biologically disposed to pair bond. We are a pair bonding species, um, but. We're also sort of designed or evolved so that when the babies are up and able to run around on their own power to break the pair bond and then pair bond with someone else. So her thing is like, you know, yes, we are. We are designed to pair bond, but it's for five to seven years. And, you know, and she calls it a mixed mating strategy. So there's like. You know, there's the the monogamy, but then there's also the straying. And she plays the center very well with that stuff. Yeah, And I think in Sex at Dawn, we just went across the bridge and we're like, look, yeah. we're not a pair bonding species. That's a culture. We are in terms of intimacy and forming relationships and friendships and all that. But sexually there's no evidence that we're a sexually pair bonding species. That's a cultural sure. overlay. So, you know, I think we were more bold about making that statement than, than she has been. And so, yeah, it's, it's confusing. And, and it's, she was in the bar that night and that was part of the conversation is <laughs> like, wait, do we actually disagree here? You know, cause I, yeah. I'm yeah. not sure. But then another part of, of the, the sort of uproar against us is that, we're not academics. And so we come up with this book. No one's ever heard of us. We didn't go to any of these graduate programs. We didn't, you know, like, who the fuck are these people? And it's the book selling really well. And, you know, there's all this media attention to it. And so there's a lot of resentment from people who feel like, you know, I paid my dues. I've been studying this for 30 years. And who the fuck is this? Right. And that's fair enough, you know, but Yeah, Yeah, and I understand that completely, but I do feel like it would have been very difficult for someone who was coming from an academic perspective to have written Sex at Dawn, yeah. you know, because, you know, I couldn't have gone to a, like, you know, I couldn't have studied under David Buss and done my doctoral research on arguing that monogamy is not natural to our species. That wouldn't have yeah. been approved as a PhD thesis because it, it argues against the head of the department. You know, you can't do that. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, but enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so you uh, your book's doing really well. I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. It came out in 2011, and it's it's still selling like hotcakes.
1: Yeah, it's actually, I, I haven't looked in a while, but um, it's typically the one of the, the top, ranked uh men's dating advice books
0: yeah nice well so was was this like the first um because i feel like there's sort of a backlash to the pickup artist thing right like that wave came and hit big and got a lot of attention was your book the first um like hey you know you don't need to lie to get laid kind of book
1: uh, i don't know if it was the first, but um it definitely was the one that and and this is just my own perspective but um uh, it definitely seems to be the first one that argued against the pickup pick up artist stuff that pickup artist guys took seriously yeah uh, like it 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 made counter arguments in such a way that Pickup artist guys. Um, And I still get to this day. I get emails every week from guys who are like, "I can't believe I spent a a year of my life doing all this PUA crap, and I read your book, and you know it completely changed everything." Um, So yeah, I mean, and that was when I wrote it. That was I had I had a few objectives with writing it, and that that was one of them was I, I I wanted to write something that was I felt was a very clear. Rejection of pickup artist stuff, but I, I wanted to be able to replace it with something better. I didn't want to just be the the person who was like, "Ah, you shouldn't say that crap to girls; that doesn't work." You know, I, I wanted to be able to also present an explanation for why it doesn't work and why uh, you know these other concepts of being honest, being vulnerable, working on yourself—like why these are actually better alternatives.
0: Yeah. Now, all right. I haven't read your book, so uh, forgive me if I'm if you know I step on my feet here. But it, it this is advice that I give to people a lot. Um, you know, I, I think there's a huge, and I'm sure you're keyed into this in a much bigger way than I am. But there's a huge appetite among guys in their twenties and through their thirties, um, looking for someone who can guide them, who can help them, uh, dealing with career choices, dealing with relationship stuff. It Maybe it's the the divorce, the absent father, I I don't know what, but it feels like there are a lot of people writing to me, asking me for advice, even though I constantly say I'm not qualified to give anyone advice. Um, There seems to be a lot of hunger for that. And, you know, attracting women through honesty, doesn't that presuppose that what you're being honest about is attractive i mean what if you're what if you're fucked up what if you're really insecure what if you're unattractive what if you're you have no experience with women and have no idea what you're doing being honest about that might not be your best move
1: right well the book talks about that you know it says okay I'm supposed to be honest and open about myself and share everything. you know what if I am a loser? What if I am? I don't have anything going on um, you know what if I am really insecure and basically the short answer is the argument I make is I say that honesty is the way you fix that. Um, you know the way you stop the way you get over your in- insecurities is by exposing them um, the way you kind of get over your deadbeat lifestyle is admitting it to yourself and admitting it to those around you and then t- and taking responsibility for it. Um, none of these things about yourself can change, uh, until you're, you're honest about them. Um, until you, you admit them, you accept them and you take responsibility for them. So, um, it, within the book itself, I, I, I make the point a few times, um, uh, that, you know, honesty isn't just something that you use in your communication with women. It's something that you use with yourself. It's something you take a hard look uh, because, you know, back when I, I did a lot of the dating advice stuff, I, I would get these guys who would come to me and they're like, you know, all the women I meet are bitches and they're all really shallow and superficial. All they care about is money. And I would talk to the guy for a little while and it's like, you know he's like 28 he has no job he lives in his mom's basement he's overweight um his hobbies are like world of warcraft and fantasy novels nothing not that there's anything wrong with that but it's like you have to have something going on in your life and what i realized after a while is i'm like these guys like a guy like that his problem isn't you know that he's not saying the right things because there's nothing he can say that's going to make him attractive. The problem is that he's not being honest to himself. He's not being honest that his life sucks. And until he can do that, he he can't change it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's well said. Uh, so it's not just being honest with the person you're trying to establish a relationship with. It's first being honest with yourself. Yeah. Yeah, about where you are and who you are. Um, I'll tell you a funny, funny anecdote. One of the first times I was hanging out with Neil Strauss, um, it was a, I don't remember where it was, but there were women around and, you know, some, some woman came over and we were chatting and whatever, and she left. And Neil said to me, I'll bet you had sex with a woman before you were 15. And I said, yeah, actually that's true. And he said, I can always tell. He said that the men who have sex with a woman before they're 15 will always be relaxed around women. And the further, the later after 15, that first sexual experience is, the less comfortable they'll be around women. And a lot of I would love to have a podcast with you and him on someday, because you guys would have some very interesting things to say to each other i'm sure yeah. not not contentious because no, i
1: know i i'd love to chat with him about a lot of this stuff
0: yeah and, and you you know we spoke about him a little bit before i started recording but he's he's a really thoughtful guy and and i think the book um that he's written that's coming out in october i believe um that could be a very uh good time actually for a conversation with you because i think and I don't want to take any of the, the you know, the momentum out of his book. But I think that this book represents um, a sea change in his thinking about relationships.
1: Well, it, it's funny. You, you joked earlier that you saw my article and, and you had one of those bittersweet reactions of like, damn it, I should have I should have done this first. Um, when I saw he announced his book and like the title and the cover and everything, when he announced that, I took one look. I like clicked on the link. I saw the the cover. I saw the title, and my immediate reaction was like, "Damn it! I, <laughs> this is I should have written this. Damn, this is like this idea is too good." I he he, he got to it first.
0: Well, you did so, write it.
1: Yeah, I did. But I mean it, the the way he framed it, and this is the thing. I mean, models models is very is specifically directed towards dating and it, and it's, it's applicable to older, older guys too. And it's also a lot of women read it now, but, um, it's specifically dating related and it's, I've kind of got it in the back of my mind to one day write a relationship book. And, uh, and as soon as I saw his book, I was like, crap, that's totally like the relationship book I would (laughs) want to (laughs) write.
0: Yeah. Although the thing, you know, like I'm working on this book now and, um, the first book, when I was writing Sex at Dawn, uh, it's the same editor, different publisher, but same editor. And when I was writing Sex at Dawn, I had this blog on psychology today, and and I went to my editor, and I was like, look, should I be, I don't know how many of the ideas from Sex at Dawn I should present in the blog, right? I, I don't want to take the wind out of it. And he was like, yeah, be careful about that, you know, maybe hint at things, but don't, like, explain the whole argument, whatever. And then this book, uh, I went to the same guy and I was like, okay, so I'm doing this, you know, now I've got much bigger public profile and, you know, should I mention this? What do you think? And and he was like, ah, it doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? He said, well, because now, like, the reason people are going to read this is because you wrote it. But yep. the other book, the they, you were nothing. So it was the ideas were the only thing that you had to sell. But now... You, now that you've got you know a, a public following, you don't need to worry because they're going to read it because it's you and they like the way you write and the way you think and all that. So I think you and Neil are certainly in that same position. Like that book's going to be really successful, I think, because Neil Strauss wrote it. You know, yeah. and then if you write it, it's you know it's you writing it and you're coming at it from a completely different perspective yeah. and different voice and all that. But yeah, it's 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 just interesting because you know these techniques, and you know I I I fall more in in line with what you're doing, and but it I do think that there's a lot of um, I think it's there's an underappreciated um what's what's the word Uh, trauma in particularly in American society of boys between you know 14 or 15 and 1920 or whenever or maybe college those are really really hard years for a lot of yeah. adolescent boys in ways that even talking about it i can hear i can feel people recoiling i can feel women saying fuck you you know, you adolescent boys, you perverts, and jerking off every fifteen minutes, and I can feel the hostility. And the thing is that um, I, I had a, a woman on uh, a couple weeks ago who's a transgender, uh, uh, male to female, and you know she talked about uh, testosterone, and and in fact, in Sex at Dawn, we uh, quote some transgender people who took testosterone injections and. Like women don't understand what it's like to be obsessed with with sex and with, you know, uh, with something that you can't possibly get. And the problem is that these boys see women as having something that they desperately want and and they see the women as withholding it from them as opposed to a social system. And there's, there's a lot of hostility generated by that.
1: Yeah. And then and then on top of that, you kind of get this. You start to develop this culture where it's status evolves, you know, so yeah. if, if you're the guy in high school who can get the girls, then suddenly you're the cool guy and you're, you know, everybody looks up to you. And if you're the guy who can't get any attention from girls, then, you know, you're the loser and everybody makes fun of you and picks on you. And so right. it kind of get it kind of gets fused and. Deep in in a lot of young men's brains that um, all right girls don't like me that means that I am not a, a, a worthwhile individual um, and then you know of course as you and I know uh, adolescent boys are extremely cruel um, and yeah I mean it, it's funny you bring this up I was actually after models I, I started working on a book about this um, basically about Toxic masculinity, um, and there's it's only been written about by a few people, uh, and I got maybe twenty five percent into a first draft, um, and and I put it up for a variety of reasons. One was it, it, it just it's a I mean, talking about if you if you're gonna try to make a career talking about gender today, like there there are a handful of people that you know write about gender full time like that's their thing and god i have so much respect for them even if i don't agree even the ones i don't agree with because um, it is such a uh, it's a minefield right now uh if you're a writer or an activist or a thinker um like there is basically nothing you can say right now about men or women that will not be completely like, you will be hard and feathered and firebombed (laughs) every direction by both sides like i consistently get emails um both from a radical feminist like way on the left and from radical conservatives way on the right just like trashing me sometimes over the same paragraph um (laughs) and i'm just like this is insane like i can't say anything yeah um so yeah, that, that was one reason I dropped it. Um, another reason is just that I, I felt like I was kind of painting myself into a corner. Like it, I didn't want to be, I wanted to write about other things. I wanted to write yeah. about, and I wanted to write the women as well. Um, so, but yeah, I, I still feel very strongly about this subject. I think it's something, there are a couple of great books out there. Um, I wish I could remember them right now because I would recommend them. Um, uh, you can it, you
0: can tell me later and I'll put the links up on the site.
1: Sure. Um, but yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of attention these days on how women are treated uh, and kind of the, the influences and pressures that women, particularly young women, feel. Um, and all of that is is important. Um, there's a lot of important stuff that that. Is just now being talked about that needs to be talked about in regards to that. Um, And what I wish is that people could go to the next step and realize that there are a lot of these same sort of pressures that are thrust upon boys and young men um, that are just as fucked up. Uh, that are not getting talked about right now, and and part and sadly, part of the reason that they're not getting talked about is that if you bring it up, the people who, the people who want to talk about the problems women have get very they feel threatened and they get very upset about it. Yeah. Um, but the 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 thing is, is that it's the same conversation. Um, it's the same conversation. It's just you know two different flavors of the same conversation. The the pressures boys feel right now are a little bit different, but they're just as toxic. It's just the results are a little bit different. Um, So, yeah, I wish people could talk about that, and I wish that got out there a little bit more. Um, So, who knows? Maybe this podcast will... (laughs) Change the world. Yes, trigger something.
0: Well, you know, one of the running themes in this podcast is a refusal to um, accept the, the, you know, politically correct um, guidance of American society. I I welcome uh, people saying whatever the fuck they want to say, and I say whatever the fuck I want to say, and, you know, I, I don't care. And part of the reason I don't care, A, is I'm not an academic, so I can't be drummed out of my job. And I don't have a job. And (laughs) B, I haven't lived in the U.S. for most of my life. I'm in Portland, Oregon right now, but I've lived in Spain for the last 25 years. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in the U.S., but I haven't lived here most of my adult life. So, I feel like an outsider, you know, I feel like an anthropologist who just happens to speak the language really well and know how things work. But I still feel like an outsider. And I see insanity in this country everywhere I look. And one of the most insane things is what you just described. It's this, you know, and you can see it replicated in the political process. It's like there cannot be a conversation because the premise of the two sides precludes, you know, if you talk to the other side and, and accept the reasonableness of any position from the other side, you're betraying our side. Yeah. And I don't see how that ends anywhere other than, you know, explosions and bloodshed, because, yeah. you know, what you just said is eminently reasonable. But I can hear women saying, well, adolescent boys don't get raped, so fuck you. Well, okay, they don't get raped, but they commit suicide at much higher numbers than adolescent girls do, right? So, can they, we just
1: they get, yeah, and they get sh- the shit beat out of them all the time, and right. people laugh about it and say like, ah, oh, well, he's a pussy, he deserves it, right? Okay.
0: Yeah, so, or or yeah. like, or they go to prison where they get raped, and everyone laughs about that. I mean, it's that's a t- laugh line on sitcoms, yeah. You know, it, it's so. And, and it's something I tried we were trying to do in Sex at Dawn, too, is like, look, this war between the sexes is a is a divide and conquer technique here. And you're falling for it. You know, yeah. it we're all getting fucked by this. And the, the section I'm writing right now in Civilized to Death is about I think I mentioned earlier is like, you know, this rich versus poor thing. No. No, that's a setup. And and if you engage in that, you're falling for it and you're being distracted from the real problem, which is that this economic system leads to happiness for no one. Right? Yeah. It's it you, I don't care if you're winning or losing. You're still fucked. So it's um it's interesting. I mean, I I hope that that becomes a more popular way of looking at things, but uh it it, it yeah, I'm with you. It, You've is that, is that your only book models? Yes. Yeah. So you, I mean, you're in a position now where you're getting a lot of public attention from the book, from your your blog. I, I saw, um I don't know if you're inflating your numbers, but it said join two million monthly readers. Like, dude, two million monthly readers. So you must be getting a lot of a lot of vitriol, and you, you say you read all your emails, which you know. Good on you, man. That's hard to do. Um, but you, you're right. You get shit from every fucking direction um, yeah. when you become a public persona in any way. Yeah. So uh, how do you deal with that? Do you, uh, have you developed the psychological capacity to not give a fuck?
1: <laughs> That's a start. Um, I, I want to interject here really quick. Um, the book I want to recommend, it's called Raising Cain protecting the emotional life of boys it's written by dan clinton and michael thompson
0: Ah, okay cool
1: you want to hear about this check it out um yeah so um i've i've been blogging for about eight years um and yeah you you really just develop kind of a thick skin to it um it also helps so like i i do read all the email i get but like I do. I have an assistant who screens everything. So you know, spam, people who send me gibberish, and then people who just send me like, like nonsense. Like, you're dumbass. Go to hell. Fuck you. You know. So (laughs) none of that stuff. None of that that was for me, Mark. Yeah. (laughs) All of your emails. (laughs) It it all gets deleted before it gets to me. But I do. um, You know, any sort of anything that any sort of criticism that it looks like somebody put any sort of thought into, um, it does come to me and it, it does get frustrating, but yeah, you just kind of learn to deal with it after a while. And, and one, one thing is it's actually over the years, it, I think it's been kind of useful in that it's really taught me, um, who my audience is and what I care about. Uh, you know, so for instance, kind of going back to some of this politically correct stuff, um, you know, on my site, I drop a lot of F-bombs. I make some, uh, you know, some little, some edgy jokes. Um, I use some examples that are a little bit, you know, a little bit out there. And so, yeah, people get offended. And, uh, I get a lot, I've been getting a lot of emails the last few months from a lot of these kind of politically correct types, um find a way to get offended by just about anything I say and um, it's frustrating at first but after a while you kind of learn, you're like, these aren't my people and in fact I I actually remember when I wrote that article, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, um, you know, we did like a, me and my assistant, we did like a control F in it and uh, you know, it uses the word fuck like 127 times or something like that um and we kind of joked and he was like oh man you're gonna get a lot of a lot of like you know pissy uptight people complaining about this one and I kind of told him like you know what good like this is gonna weed them out because yeah if you get offended uh, like I had a woman the other week who got offended because I included a a YouTube video in my article uh in defense of being average, I inclu- included a YouTube clip and it's a YouTube clip of people skydiving and doing backflips on motorbikes uh, and, yeah, yeah, and like skiing off cliffs and all this stuff. It's like a, it's a, it's just a montage of like all these kind of extreme, amazing things. And I used it in, in the article to kind of make an example. And, and I, I got an email from a woman who was legitimately upset that there were not enough women in the video. <laughs> and she was upset at me she she wasn't upset at the video she was upset at me that i dared to put a video on my site that was not 50 50 man woman and it's just like you know what i don't want these people to read me go away (laughs) so so yeah i um the other thing i've learned is uh i don't respond unless it's really clear that the person it's like you said so there's two types of criticism or kind of hate mail is there's the people that are criticizing you and you can tell that they have no interest in a conversation, they have no interest in a debate, they have no interest in hearing, you know, another side to it. Um, they're basically just emailing me to tell me that I'm wrong. Um, I've learned over the years to not even respond to them. and then there's people that email me with criticisms, and it's clear that they've they're thoughtful in the way they they wrote the email. They're they're open to hearing another side. They're open to hear a defense um, for the things they say. And um, a lot of those I will engage with them, and and I will reply to them. But you know, it, it's it's the same thing as you know, it, if like. This, some guy stops you on the street and starts telling you that you're going to go to hell unless you vow to give your life to Jesus Christ. It's like you don't talk to that guy. You don't reply yeah. to him. Yeah. You do know, cuz there's nothing you can say. So I I feel that way about a lot of a lot of these emails about, you know, various things that I get as well.
0: Yeah, it's that's one of the the advantages of having such a volume of interaction with people i think that you start to notice patterns really quickly um you know like the the person who says you know if you actually research this you'd you'd see that i'm right like okay yeah that's someone i don't want to engage with right? right um you see And also what you, you referred to there is I found a very important thing that I've learned in the last few years is you don't have to respond, Yeah. you know? And, and I think as a normal person, you know, five years ago I was getting maybe 10 emails a day. Right. And I, I looked forward to getting emails, Yeah. you know, and now it's, you know, a hundred and something. And, um, but so I have this habit of of like, hey, if somebody takes the time to write to me, I should write back, especially, you know, people who have, you know, serious problems and they're turning to me for advice. I feel honored mm-hmm. um, and I feel some sense of responsibility, like you were saying about money earlier. You know, having a lot of attention from people also confers some responsibility, um, but. But the power to not engage is something that Neil Strauss actually said to me. We were having, you know, he's sort of um, taken a bit of a mentor role for me. You know, he's like gives me advice on dealing with publishers and stuff like that. And uh, one night at dinner, he said to me, you get successful by saying yes, you remain successful by saying no. Yeah. Cause I had been saying yes to way too many things. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's a good insight.
1: There's definitely an inflection point, And I, I noticed this, uh, and actually, I mean, I think the first time you emailed me at mentioning this podcast, you know, my reply was, uh, I definitely want to come on, but, um, I'm not doing interviews right now, you know, so it's going to wait, you know, it might be two months. It might be six months, whatever. Um, but yeah, there was definitely an inflection point for me the last year where, because yeah, when you're starting out, you say yes to everybody. Um, you take every call, you take every interview, um, you go on every website, uh, and then you hit a point where it's like, it's diminishing returns and you get exhausted and burnt out and you, you just kind of, you're like, okay, I need to start picking and choosing my spots here for, for the, the best effect.
0: Yeah, and you lose sight of what got you there in the first place, right? Yeah. Which in both our cases is writing. And I've spent the last three years or so, you know, in meetings with people TV producers and sitting in interviews for documentaries and talking to agents and lawyers about getting a TV show going and oh we're not going to do that and then we shoot the sizzle reel and that takes a few months and then there's the editing and then there's this Australian thing that they want to do and then there's the and meanwhile I'm not writing a fucking word you know and uh at a certain point it's like well what the what's the point I don't even you know w- you, you're never going to get that carrot that's dangling in front of you. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a voice like you do in, in writing, you know, what the hell? that's That's got to be the focus. So what are you working on now?
1: So actually, you know, speaking of a new book, um, I, I do have a new book that I'm working on. And the reason I didn't come on immediately was I, I was finishing the manuscript for it. Um, and then... I'm actually, I can't give out too many details about it. Originally, I was gonna self-publish it, like my first, but um, I went ahead and got an agent, and right now we're we're shopping it around to uh, to various publishers. So it'll probably be um, a, a little while before it'll probably be next year, sometime when it comes out. But um, it's it's definitely exciting to at least have a draft of it done and have a have an idea of you know what it's going to say what it's going to be about and and, uh and it's also it's all you know i i've always been kind of a grassroots do-it-yourself internet guy um and so it's been uh very gratifying in a way to have kind of the uh the the mainstream publishing world take notice and uh reward me for for all my work for all these years uh
0: why? What, what was your experience like in self-publishing? I'm I'm curious because I'm sort of thinking to go in the other direction.
1: You know, it, it's funny. I talked to so many people, Chris, the last six months about this question. <laughs> so my my experience with models, uh, it was good. I mean, and and it was definitely the right move for me at the time. I had a much smaller profile. Um, I mean, basically, the advantage you get with self-publishing is you get far less reach but you get higher profit margin Um, and so for me at the time I was kind of a small time guy I had a had a a modest blog following had a very niche topic um, and I wasn't making very much money so it it made sense at the time you know if I had pursued a publisher it would have I probably would have gotten a very small deal and it probably would have taken a year for the book to come out but when you self-publish you can just knock that thing out you know within a few months if you're done with the if you're done with the, the writing um, and you get you get to keep the majority of uh, the sales I, I initially planned on doing that with this book as well um, but the thing is is my audience has grown to the point it, like it's basically it's becoming clear to me that a lot of the things that I'm writing about um, have a very broad appeal. Um, so most of the people who read me now, it's it's they're they're younger, they're tech savvy, they listen to podcasts like this, they're on Facebook or Twitter a lot. Um, but the, there's a whole segment of the population that's not on social media that doesn't listen to podcasts. You know, it still goes to bookstores. Um, and I I came to the conclusion that. You know, I, I I have a lot of things to say that are can appeal to those types of people, um, and so this it for me right now. It's worth giving up that extra, that a little bit extra control, a little bit extra profit margin, um, to reach that wider audience and to establish myself a little bit more. The other thing, and and this isn't an issue for you right now, but uh, it's an issue for me, and it was part of my decision, is that. As great as self-publishing is right now, it's in terms of you know if you want to get a column somewhere, or you want to do some speaking, um, you know, you want to get flown to events, um, it, you're not given the same credibility, or people don't take you as seriously if you're self-published. Um, they they want to see that that tri- that traditional publisher stamp of approval. Um, and it brings you a lot of credibility in other arenas. You know, you were talking about talking to agents and lawyers about TV shows and stuff like that. And and it's like, if you're only self-published, that's like almost impossible right now. Um, I imagine now you, it was a (laughs) a
0: waste of fucking time.
1: (laughs) I can imagine it. And it's, it's funny. You're, you're like the you're like the third or fourth person I've met who's kind of given me a, a cautionary, like, you know, it sounds sexy. Don't do it. Um,
2: <laughs> oh, God. but, uh,
1: but yeah, so it, it's, um, uh, it's still, I so it's an interesting, the, the whole publishing industry is in a really interesting place. And, and I do think one day, you know, maybe 10 years from now, 15 years from now, um, self-publishing will probably make sense for most people, but, um, these days, it really depends on your situation and what your goals
0: are. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because your trajectory is sort of the way you read it is the opposite of what most people would say. Because, you know, most people would say, well, self-publishing doesn't make sense unless you've got a platform where you can reach a lot of people and sell a lot of books. And you have that now. and, And yet you're opting to give up control and, a mass, a big part of your profit margin, you know, you're going from, you know, what, 60, 70% of, you know, net to f- eight or 12%, you know, with a, yeah. with a publisher. And then your agent's going to take his 15% off the top of that. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, cause I sort of read it the opposite way. I was like, I'll go traditional build up the platform. And then once I feel like I can reach enough people and sell enough books and to be honest, have checked that credibility box that you're talking about. Yeah, um, then I can afford to to go off on my own because, you know, I, I mean, I only have that one book, but the the frustration that I felt dealing with Harper was incredible. And then when I uh, when we pitched the second book, it went to auction, you know, because Sex at Dawn was so unexpectedly successful. Um, and every major publisher bid on it except Harper, <laughs> <laughs> because you know uh, because I've spoken about it publicly and they knew like I would never do another book with them, <laughs> uh, you know, short of six figures, so, and they weren't willing to go there so, or seven figures. I,
1: I've ta- I've talked to a couple other successful authors who who are who are thinking about doing it your way too. Um, yeah, it's weird. I I think. Yeah. If you have no, like if you have no platform, no readers, then, you know, you might as well take a stab at a publisher, um, because it takes a long time to build a blog and a platform yeah. and readership and everything. Um, I think there's kind of a, I think what it is, is there's a sweet spot in there. Um, I think, cause I, I, I do meet a lot of bloggers who have a modest readership. You know, they have say twenty five thirty thousand 30,000 readers a month, um, you know, but they don't, you know, they're in a really niche space. Um, you know, they write about, like, travel food or something like that. And it's like, well, you know, you, you might as well just self-publish because, um, you know, any sort of deal, all the hassles and the time it takes to deal with a publisher, it's probably not going to be worth it in the long run. Um, and, and you can build off a of self-published work, you know. But I, I think there comes another point on the higher end of the scale, you know, once your readership does get into, you know, the high six and low seven figures, um, it's just, I, I think the publisher's machinery suddenly takes on a, a, a new value.
0: Yeah. Um, well, and also yeah. if you're, if you, um, come in with those sorts of numbers then you're not going to get treated the way we got treated with Sex at Dawn, right?
1: If you've got it, yeah. Go yeah, ahead. I was going to say like that was a huge concern of mine because I was getting emailed by agents, you know, all the time, and I kind of I told them I was like, look, I know some authors, and they were saying the same thing you're saying, Chris. So they're like, yeah, my my publisher basically treated me like a a slave and like you know completely disregarded my opinion half the time, and and the agent told me he he was like. You know what? How big were their How big was their their contract? How much money did the publisher give them? Because he was like, because here's the thing: if a publisher gives you a lot of money, suddenly they like really care. Like they'll listen to you and they like want to make you happy. He's like, if it's a small advance, you know, the publisher is not going to waste their time listening to the author. Like, yeah, there's no point.
0: Yeah, and and it goes. I mean, in our case, we had a forty thousand dollar advance, so that. That's, I mean, that's big for you know yeah. some people, but it, you know it wasn't big enough that the publisher gave a shit. Um, but then even after the book became a, a New York Times bestseller, I thought, oh, now now things are going to be different. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> no. uh, you're scared, of me, Chris.
0: No, no. But if you go in, if you've got like a you know a six figure advance, then what your agent said is true. Then okay. they have so much riding on the success of the book that they really want you to be happy. And you know, if you don't like the cover, they'll you know reconsider it. Whereas yeah. you know, in our case, it was like, oh, you don't like the cover? Fuck off. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. Um Well, listen, I I look at the clock here. We've been going almost 90 minutes. I've taken up a lot of your time. I feel like we haven't, like there's so many things I wanted to talk about with you. Travel and living overseas and Colombia and, you know, women in foreign countries. There are so many things that, uh, experiences that we can talk about. But uh, I don't want to drag out too much of your time. So maybe we can do that another time with Neil Strauss or without Neil Strauss or whatever. Um, Yeah,
1: ever I'd be I'd be happy to come back and yeah it's we do have a lot of I mean you are like you said you're about 20 years ahead of me but um we do seem to have a lot of shared experiences and and views so yeah I'm I'm happy to come back
0: great well great I would love that have you ever lived in Spain by the way
1: no I've visited a couple times but I've never lived there actually my girlfriend and I our big goal next year is to get over there and get a long-term visa in Spain
0: ah okay cool where's she from is that,
1: she's from Brazil
0: ah, right well, my wife's from mozambique oh, wow. uh so she grew up speaking Portuguese, and uh everyone thinks she's Brazilian because she's her uh, ancestors are from India, so she looks you know like Indian tropical kind of she does she's not black um but uh yeah, well that you should well we'll we'll talk after I turn off the recording here because there's some other things I want to tell you about but uh definitely uh you know if you come to Spain look us up we'll be back there by then and uh I think next summer we're planning to um get an apartment in Cantabria which is in uh in the north on the Atlantic and spend the summer um camping out in prehistoric caves. Wow. Yeah. That's what we want to do, like do a lot of walking in the mountains and, you know, sleep because there are lots of famous prehistoric cave sites around there. So I'm sure there are hundreds of ones that nobody except the locals knows about, uh, know about. And so we'll uh, our plan is to just spend a lot of time up there and like, you know, build a fire and sleep where people were sleeping 30,000 years ago and watch the sunrise where they saw it rise and. Just sort of get into that experience. That's I'm, cool. I've got this idea of uh, writing a sort of a fictional um, treatment of prehistoric life, sort of like Clan of the Cave Bear meets Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Will, will this caveman be a, a, a billionaire uh, <laughs> concert pianist who flies helicopters in his free time?
0: Exactly. Wearing, <laughs> you know, flayed skins. Exactly. Yeah. Do you know the... Do you ever see The Clan of the Cave Bear? Do you know that movie?
1: No, I don't.
0: Uh, it was... Uh, it's based on a, a best-selling series of books. And uh, the movie starred um uh shit now i can't remember i always forget this woman's name the tall blonde who was in splash daryl hannah okay daryl hannah yeah and the first person who ever asked me to sign a copy of sex at dawn was daryl hannah
1: no kidding yeah
0: hey. yeah a bit of a mind blower and i don't <laughs> hang out with movie stars so it's completely yeah, yeah. bizarre that i even met her but Anyway, that's that's a story for another time. Thanks for doing this, Mark. This was a lot of
1: fun. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Thank mm-hmm.